passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. I do think it is appropriate for us as we uh, begin looking at this sermon uh, series on prayer to to actually spend some time in prayer. But before we do that, I want to just... um, start with this quote from a Scottish theologian. His name is P.T. Forsyth uh, from the late 1800s, early 1900s, and it it really just perfectly sums up some of the the angst, I guess, that I feel uh, as I I approach this topic. And so just hear these words. uh, He says this, it is a difficult and formidable thing to preach on prayer, and one fears to touch the ark. Perhaps no one ought to undertake it unless he has spent more toil in the practice of prayer than on its principle. But perhaps also the effort to look into its principle may be graciously regarded by him who ever lives to make intercession as itself a prayer to know how better to pray. It is a dangerous thing to talk about prayer, to preach on prayer, especially because of the danger to, to come across as, as a wise sage, someone who has it all figured out. And this morning I am intimately aware of there, there's this profound gap between my desire to pray and then the actual prayer, uh, the actual praying that I do in my life. And so as I approach this topic, I, w- I want to just uh, say that I am, am just in, in this humble Ah, that we have a God who has made a way for us to be able to approach his throne with, gra- with confidence, that, that we are able to cry out to him, that we are able to call upon his name. And so my prayer this morning is that this sermon would actually be a, a sort of prayer for each and every one of us, uh, that, that we, are, we are crying out to God saying, Lord, teach us to pray. And with that in mind, let's, uh, let's pause and, and pray this morning. God, as we approach your word this morning, I, I know that I um, all too often do so as, as someone who struggles to pray. Too often that I spend more time thinking about prayer than spending time in prayer. That all too often I'm someone who, when it comes to prayer, I've, I've read too much and prayed too little. And so, Father, as we approach this topic this morning, I don't do so because of my own merit, but solely based on the work that your Son has done for us, that we are now granted access to the throne of grace. And God, it's because of that grace that I ask that this morning all our thoughts, all of our, our words, and, and all of the actions that, that result from this time together, God, that they would be a, an offering of prayer to you. That even like the disciples asked Jesus thousands of years ago, saying, teach us to pray. God, we need your help. And so it's in Jesus' precious name that we are able to pray these things, knowing that you hear us and that you are delighted to respond. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, would you consider yourself a prayer? That's a really weird word to, to write out, prayer, not prayer. Would you consider yourself a prayer? Someone who doesn't just pray, but someone whose entire life is shaped and, and formed by prayer. 
that it governs your life, that it directs your life. And I would imagine that very few of us would actually be able to say yes to that question. And that actually, whether, whether it's true or not, it actually reveals uh, one of the, the dangers of preaching on prayer. One of the dangers of a sermon series on prayer is that oftentimes we can develop this weight of guilt, this sense of guilt that, man, I really, I really should be praying more. Even those people who are great prayers, those who have lives that are, are formed and, and shaped by time and prayer can feel this weight of guilt saying, man, I wish that I prayed more. And to use the language of that quote from, from Forsyth earlier, it is a difficult topic. It is a, a formidable topic for us to approach. And so it is with this great relief, uh, at least for me, to know that we are not alone. That we are not alone in our desire to become better prayers and our desire to to spend more time, not just talking about prayer, but actually spend time in prayer. Because as our sermon series title tells us, Jesus' own disciples asked him this very same question. Luke chapter 11. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. Significantly, this is the only time in the Gospels when Jesus' disciples ask him for instruction on on how to do something. They don't say, Jesus, teach us how to preach, or or, Jesus, teach us how to perform miracles. They don't don't say, Jesus, teach us, give us an effective strategy for, for sharing the Gospel with the lost. Tell us how we can effectively care for those that you have entrusted into our care. No, when they see Jesus praying... They're struck to the core, and and they say, that's not someone who's just going through the motions. That's someone who is actually praying. And so, Lord, we, we want that. Teach us to pray like that. And last week, Pastor Chris led us through Luke 11 earlier uh, in our series, and we looked at the Lord's Prayer. We saw that, that Jesus significantly doesn't spend any time in that powerful passage talking about form. He doesn't, get, he doesn't say, okay, now if you want to pray, you need to stand like this. Or, or you need to bow and, and be on your knees. He doesn't say, all right, if you really want to pray, you need to, to lift your hands and your eyes to the heavens. Or, 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 or you need to fold your hands and close your eyes. He doesn't say, hey, you know what? The most effective way to pray is to use a prayer journal. Or it's to use a prayer list. Or it's to use prayer cards. He doesn't address form at all. He just simply says, if you want to pray your Father's heart, if you want to pray, if you want to truly pray, pray like this. And then he lists what his Father's heart is in prayer. And he raises this important distinction for us this morning because I think in one sense, prayer comes naturally to us, doesn't it? Romans 1 tells us that within each and every one of us is there, uh, there's this innate sense of God. There's this innate knowledge of, of God, that he is real. And so we see prayer exists in countless religions. It is even found on the lips of those who say, I don't believe in God when they are in a desperate spot. They, they say, God, or, or the gods, please help me if you exist. And it's that basic form of 
prayer that, that Pastor Andy alluded to at the beginning of his sermon a, a couple weeks ago when he, when he talks about the student who, who hasn't studied for their test but cries out to God, hey, 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 help me, please. Or the person who's going to be late for work and it's in the middle of the winter and their car isn't really uh, known to start all that well saying, hey, God, you, you gotta help me out here. Prayer, in one sense, comes naturally to us. It's one of the most natural things in the world. But yet, at the same time that it is one of the most natural things in the world, it is also one of the most unnatural things in the world. All too often, our prayers are nothing more than just a last resort. And they focus on things that are of second priority or of third priority that aren't focused on kingdom priority. So rarely do our prayers echo our Father's heart. Praying for God's glory, praying for the kingdom of God to come in its fullness, to pray that God's will over my life, over my own will, would be done in this world. Those are not things that come naturally to us. And in that sense, prayer is one of the most unnatural things in the world. And yet, in God's unending grace, God has, has done a way, or has made a way for us to learn how to pray. It's not just when Jesus teaches his disciples in the Gospels, when they ask him, teach us to pray. It's not just there. When we look at Scripture as a whole, time and time and time again, we see that God reveals to us what it actually means for us to pray. And as we turn our gaze to Scripture, as we look at what, what Scripture says about prayer, I think it reveals to us one overarching truth, and it's simply this. Prayer is fundamentally calling on God to fulfill His promises. Prayer is fundamentally calling on God to come through on those promises that he has already made. Now, that's not saying that prayer is solely this or exclusively this. Prayer is this broad term. It encapsulates all sorts of things. It encapsulates thanksgiving, when we are thanking God for for massive things that he's done in our life or the, the minute details it encapsulates all our requests when we, when we cry out for, for help because we're in a, a desperate situation or whether it's a, it's a mother who's crying out for the thousandth time for God to, to open the eyes of their child to the gospel. It includes even our complaints that are leveled at God as we see throughout the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms. Prayer is, is certainly more than calling out to God to come through on his promises, but it is also certainly fundamentally primarily just that. It is calling out to God, saying, hey God, you've made these promises in your word. Won't you come through for us? Now that's a pretty full statement. That's a, that's a pretty big, vast statement. So this morning I just want to unpack it. I want us to look at, at three ways that, that scripture reveals what true prayer fundamental prayer is in our lives. First, I want us to just trace this thread of prayer throughout the Bible, starting in Genesis, even going all the way to Revelation, looking at how the saints in Scripture spent time in prayer and what exactly they prayed for. And then I want to build on that, and I want to say, okay, if this is true, if this is what prayer actually looks like in the Bible, I want us to just pause, consider the implications of that. First, for our own hearts— how does this change our hearts when we approach God in prayer? And then second, I just want to, after that, I want to just spend a few moments looking at how can we refine 
the content of our prayers, to be more effective in praying after our own Father's heart. So uh, again, uh, starting uh, just looking at, at Scripture as a whole, we're going to trace from Genesis. Uh, we'll probably stop in, in the Old Testament just because we, we don't have enough time. But we're going to look at what prayer actually means and what it actually looks like according to the Old Testament. The entire Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation is fundamentally about a God who has made promises to his people. It is about a God who has promised to do certain things, to bring salvation, to bring deliverance for his people. And it is also about his people crying out to him in response to those promises saying, God, come through. Bless us. Come through on your promises. So starting in the beginning of the Bible, if you were asked the question, when is the first prayer in the Bible, what would you say? Would it be in Genesis 1 or Genesis 2, Genesis 3, Genesis 4? When is the first prayer in Scripture? Well, the first prayer that I think is compelling, Genesis chapter 4 tells us about the first prayer that is ever uttered in Scripture, the day that prayer began. Now, we all know the beginning, or many of us know the beginning of the Bible, how God creates everything good, and that includes humanity. Humanity is created as the pinnacle of his creation. God has created man and woman as the crown jewel of his creation and the only part of his creation that is like him. Only part of his creation that is created in his image. And he has a specific purpose for humanity in his creation. First, they are made to rule with him. They are made to rule underneath his own rule. God has delighted in creating people in his image to serve as his governors over all of creation under his care. To fill the earth with his glory. To spread his name to the ends of the earth. But second, and I think more important for our purposes this morning, is that God also created humanity not just to rule alongside him, but also to dwell with him, to live in the joy of his presence forever. But if you're familiar with the beginning of the Bible and if you're familiar with your own experience, that's not exactly what takes place. Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2 tells us about how God has created us, the purpose we are created for. And then we get to Genesis chapter 3, and we see that humanity isn't content with just being like God. They say, hey, you know what? I, I actually want to be God. They don't want to rule underneath God. They say, hey, you know what? We want that throne for ourselves. We want to rule instead of you. They don't dwell with God. They want to remove him from their own presence. And that's what we see in Genesis chapter 3, the breaking of God's good creation. Almost at the beginning of the Bible, we see that there's this war that exists in our own hearts. A war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. And Adam and Eve say, hey, we want to exalt our own kingdom, even if that means that we are going to have to get rid of God's kingdom. In Genesis chapter 3, God pronounces judgment upon his creation because of this rebellion that Adam and Eve start against him. And yet, significantly, in the midst of that judgment upon his creation, God also issues a promise. He says that there is going to be a day when the enmity that exists between humanity and the, enemies, uh, the enemy of their soul, it will come to an end. That there will one day be a day when God will vanquish all the rebellion that started in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. That's going to come through the offspring of Eve. It's found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God, speaking to the serpent, says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman 
and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Throughout church history, this one verse has been called the pre-gospel because it is the first promise, just in part, but the first time that God promises that he is going to restore his creation, that he's going to fix the broken mess of his creation caused by the rebellion of Adam and Eve. And you see here that Adam and Eve are promised that one day an offspring will come, that a child will come, and that child is going to make everything right. That child is going to reverse the curse that was brought in by their rebellion against God. And so then we turn to Genesis 4. In Genesis 4, we, we look there and we encounter the children of Adam and Eve. Two sons, Cain and Abel. And as we begin Genesis 4, we can ask the question, okay, well, well God just promised that a, that a child, a seed, an offspring of Eve is going to reverse this curse. Have we found those children? And then you get to Genesis chapter 4, and, and the answer, of course, is a resounding no. Adam and Eve's first son, Cain, is a murderer. Their second son, Abel, is the one who is slaughtered by his brother before he has any children. And then Genesis 4, the beginning of it, traces the line of Cain, the sons of Adam, the offspring of Adam. And all we see is death and wickedness increasing and increasing and increasing all throughout humanity. But then we get to the end of Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, verse 25. Even though God hasn't, fully, God hasn't fulfilled his promise, we see this glimpse of hope. Genesis four twenty-five. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Now to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So Adam and Eve, they have a third son, Seth. And it's clear from these verses that, that Seth is not the chosen one. He is not the offspring that will bring God's promised new creation. It is not his son, son Enosh either, according to this passage. God has promised Adam and Eve, and by extension his people, this promise that his creation will be restored. And yet here we see that it is still unfulfilled. And so as more and more offspring come into the picture, more and more children, more and more people come into the picture, and God's promise still remains unfulfilled, there's this sense that people began to realize, okay, it might take God a while. It might take God a while to actually fulfill this promise that he has made to Adam and Eve. And that's what we see in, in verse 26, what people would do when they realize, hey, God's promise hasn't come yet. It's not, it's not Seth it's not Enosh, it's not Cain. So what do they do? Verse 26. To Seth also a son was born and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now the way this verse is worded, it shows us that something new is happening right here in this moment. For the first time in history, people begin to cry out to God. Now, in the garden, Adam and Eve walked with God. They talked with God face to face, which is not the same thing that is happening here. What does it mean when they, when they call upon the name of the Lord? Well, based on the context of this passage, based on the context of the Old Testament and the New Testament, to call upon the name of the Lord is simply to cry out to God for him to fulfill his promises. Here in Genesis chapter 4, they are crying out to God. They are calling upon the name of the Lord, asking him to fulfill the promise that was given to them in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And this right here is the day that prayer begins. We see this same theme of prayer throughout the Old Testament. 
Throughout the Old Testament, when, when prayer, uh, well, prayer can be and, and often is something different, but the primary focus of prayer in the Old Testament is crying out to God, saying, hey God, this is what you have promised to us. This is what you've already committed to do. Now won't you do it for us? So we come to Genesis chapter 13. God has called Abraham. He has promised him that he will make him a great nation. And then in Genesis chapter 13, we have this response from Abraham. He went back to the place where he had made an altar at the first, and there Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. Based off the context of Genesis 12, Genesis 13, it can't really mean anything different than what we've just seen in Genesis 4. Abraham calls out to God. He calls upon the name of the Lord in an expression of trust that God is going to keep his promises And he's asking God to do exactly that. God, you've already committed to doing these things. And now I ask that you would actually come through on those promises. We see this theme that prayer is fundamentally calling on God to do what he has already said he would do. It's the heart of prayer throughout the Old Testament. Even passages that don't use this phrase, call upon the name of the Lord. Consider the prayers of the Israelites at the beginning of the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 2. During those days, the, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. What are they crying out for? They're crying out for mercy. They're crying out for deliverance. But primarily because God has said, this isn't going to last forever. That I'm going to make you a great nation. And so they cry out to God, say, hey God, this is what you promised our forefathers. Do what you have promised us that you will do. The same, is seen multiple time, the same thing is seen multiple times in the book of Judges. The people of Israel, when they need help, they are crying out to God. Even in the midst of their own faithfulness, they're crying out to God based off of what he has promised. Not because of their own merit, but because of what God has already promised he will do. Just one example, Judges 3 verse 9. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. We see the same thing in the time of the judges. The the book of Psalms is filled with prayers from King David. And many of these prayers are just simply David crying out to God, saying, hey God, you have promised me these things as your chosen king. Now come through on those promises. One example, Psalm 17. I call upon you for you will answer me, O God. I incline your, ear, or incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. And we see the same thing in the prophets as well. The book of Joel, a very famous passage, is quoted later in the New Testament to talk about our own salvation in Jesus. It says this, Joel chapter 2, verse 32, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. What is the focus here? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In other words, everyone who says, hey God, this is what you've promised us. You've promised us deliverance. Now save us. 
God's going to answer that prayer. God's going to honor that prayer. And it's the same thing in the New Testament as well. If you look at the book of Romans, Romans chapter 10, uses this passage and says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, specifically Jesus, will be saved. It's a, it's a declaration that salvation is found when we ask God to come through on his promises that God will save those who call upon his name. And in all of these different examples, the focus of prayer is on this thought that we cry out to God to do what he has said that he is going to do for his people. Again, that doesn't mean that our prayers have to only be spiritually focused. It doesn't mean that our prayer requests can only be focused on on what God has promised in the Bible. We can, we should pray for all things that come to our mind. Jesus tells us as much in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Jesus' focus on God as our heavenly Father. And as, as a dad, I have, I have three kids, and there has never been a time, unless I'm, I'm kidding or I'm in a grumpy mood, uh, there has never been a time where my kids have asked me for food, and I say, okay, go grab some rocks. Or, or I say, hey, you know what, we, we actually, you only need to be asking me about spiritual things right now. If you ask me to pray for you, I will pray for you. If you ask me to provide for you financially, I will do that because I'm obligated to do so. But don't ask me for a specific type of food. McDonald's is off the table, kids. No, if my kids ask me for something, even though I am evil, according to Jesus' passage here, because I love them, I will respond. And sometimes I respond by saying no. Our kids yesterday asked for McDonald's, and, and I said no, because, I mean, we're not going to go get McDonald's every single day when they want McDonald's. No, there are certain times where God, as our Heavenly Father, responds with a no, and yet he doesn't get upset with us for asking those things. But his primary concern, the primary focus of his heart is on the spread of his kingdom, is on the spread of his glory, is on the things that he has already promised to do. And that's what it means, as Pastor Andy led us through a couple weeks ago, that's what it means when we pray in Jesus' name. We're declaring, or at least we should be declaring, that we know that God has brought us into his family, that God has made us our children, and that through his son, we know, we can trust that God, our heavenly father, knows best. God has promised good to us. He will never do anything that will lead to our ultimate ruin, even if that means that he is saying no to our prayers today. You see, prayer is fundamentally calling out to God, asking him to do something that he has already promised to do. And the significant thing there is that Surprisingly, prayer is actually a response to God. Prayer is fundamentally a response to God. It is God who has spoken first. And we see this throughout Scripture. God has made promises to his people, and we respond to the incredible promises that are found in Scripture with prayer. 
I don't know about you, but oftentimes I can have this tendency to think that prayer um, is just a waste of time because it's supposed to be this conversation, or we say it's supposed to be this conversation, and it seems awfully one-sided. But to recognize that prayer is fundamentally talking to God about what he's already promised to do recognizes that prayer is a conversation. To borrow a a term or or a phrase that, that the Apostle John uses in the New Testament, we call upon the Lord because he first called to us. Prayer is a response to what God has already promised that he will do. And that's what prayer focuses on in the Bible. It is this response to God saying, hey, you know what, God, you've promised these things. Now, won't you deliver them for us, for your people? And when we recognize that, it revolutionizes the ways that we pray. So in the rest of our time, I just want to look at two ways that it revolutionizes this. Two ways. Uh, First, looking at our heart's posture. And then second, looking at the content of our prayers. So when we realize that before we utter a word in prayer, God has already spoken to us, God has already called out to us, when we recognize that, it changes the way that we pray. It transforms our heart's posture in prayer. When we recognize that prayer is crying out to God to do what he has already said that he is going to do, then it produces at least three heart attitudes. I want to just spend some time looking at these. First, the heart that that calls on the name of the Lord trusts God in the gap between our experience and God's promises. It trusts God in between the gap between what we experience and what we see that God has promised in his word. Why is it that we call out to God to remember his promises? It's because there is this real gap a very real gap in our lives and the lives of those who are around us. Everywhere we turn, we can see the effects of sin. People get sick and they die. Relationships are destroyed. Jobs are lost for no apparent reason. It is tough for us to financially make ends meet. Hate is is running rampant throughout our world. And to call upon the name of the Lord is to recognize that that's not the way that God intends for things to be. And it's crying out and saying, hey God, you've you've promised that things would be different. Now won't you change it? But to stop there would just be the beginning steps toward the prosperity gospel. A heart that calls upon the name of the Lord doesn't just recognize that there is this gap between our experience and what God has promised doesn't just ask God to do something about it. It also declares this resolute trust in him, no matter what our present experiences may say. It is to recognize that many of the promises that God has given to his people may have come in part, but they won't come in full until the day of Christ's return. It is to echo the the mindset of the truth uh, uh, of the men and women of faith that we see in Hebrews chapter 11. I just love these verses. They're they're so powerful. They're, They're so important to me. It says this, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. 
This heart that cries out to God, that calls upon the Lord, does so because God has called to us first, and it responds by trusting God to fulfill his promises in his time. And oftentimes that is in this better country, the new creation, the time that will come after Christ's return. It is this heart that says, hey God, I'm going to trust you in the midst of this gap, Even as I'm crying out for you to change things right now, I'm going to trust you no matter what. It's that heart that God delights in. It's that heart that God responds to with the the joy uh, of our salvation. And it's that type of heart that must be the bedrock of all our prayers. But while calling on God to to come through on his promises certainly shapes the way we pray about uh, certain prayer requests, many trials that that come our way, it it is fundamentally concerned with things about God's kingdom. Again, last week, Pastor Chris led us through uh, Luke chapter 11 and the focus there on God's glory, the focus there on God's kingdom, on God's will. There is this concern when we call out for God to fulfill his promises that we focus on God's promises to make his name famous to the ends of the earth, for his glory to flood the earth like water covers the sea, to build his church in such a way that the gates of Hades itself will not overcome it. A heart that calls upon the Lord is primarily concerned with the promises of God and the fulfillment of those promises while trusting him in the interim. That's the first component of this heart. The second is this. The heart that calls upon the name of the Lord recognizes it is powerless to bridge that gap. So uh, this heart recognizes that there is a gap between what God has promised and our experience today. But then it also recognizes, hey, there's this massive gap and I am powerless to do anything about it. When our prayers become increasingly concerned with fulfilling these massive promises that God has made to his people, we become increasingly aware of how powerless we are to bridge that gap. Paul Miller, in his incredibly helpful book, A Praying Life, puts it this way, learned desperation is at the heart of a praying life. Learned desperation is at the heart of a praying life. Do you want to become a better prayer? someone whose life is is shaped and transformed by a a heart that is focused on prayer, then we need to start by recognizing that we are virtually powerless to affect any change of lasting value in our own lives. That we are powerless to affect any lasting change in our lives, the lives of those who are around us. This is a, a very important point for us this morning in our culture, uh, because in, in our, our day and age, the information age, rapid technological advances over the last 100 years, specifically last 40 or so, we have become increasingly deluded in how powerful we think that we are. Diseases that uh, 100 years ago would have wiped out virtually everyone that contracted them are now completely wiped out themselves. They're almost completely wiped out. The dawn of refrigeration itself means that no longer do we have to ask God for our daily bread, but you know what? If we're planning ahead and we go to the store once a month, we don't even have to ask him for the rest of the month. We can can take care of ourselves, thank you very much. 
deadly heat while still dangerous? Well, we can avoid that because there are places that have air conditioning, either in our homes or in public places as well. As we have the advent of newer and newer and newer technologies, we've deluded ourselves into thinking the exact same thing Adam and Eve did in the garden. We've made ourselves gods. We are drunk with our own power. And how different is that than the heart that calls upon the Lord? Jesus tells us that rather than being drunk with this delusion of our own power, we are instead to cultivate the heart of a child. Consider this quote from Gary Miller. Once we realize that God's agenda for us is nothing less than transformation into the likeness of Jesus and that God is passionate about, establishing, or about enabling us to live wholeheartedly for him all day, every day, for our whole lives, then our need to pray and the things that we pray for become rather obvious. If we are asked to give a talk, to teach a Sunday school class, to lead a small group, to meet, to pray with someone else, to visit someone who is ill, we can do all of those things. We can. We can, make out, we can prepare crafts. We can prepare the lesson. We can read the passage. We can make the coffee. We can get in the car. We can drive to the hospital. There are some things that we can do very competently all on our own without being thrown into a blind panic. But can we do the work of God in our lives or in, in anyone else's life? You must be joking. Desperation comes when we see that there this massive scope of God's plans for us in our world. When we see our inability to do anything that makes any difference to ourselves or our world, when we see how much we need God to change us by his spirit and to change other people by his spirit, when we see that, then we will start to pray and keep praying. The heart that calls upon the Lord recognizes that it is powerless to bring about anything that God has said truly matters. And that desperation, that powerlessness drives us to pray. There's another component uh, of this heart, and that's simply this. The heart that calls on the name of the Lord says, not my will, but yours. Not my will, but yours. Not only does the heart that calls on God recognize that, that he, we are powerless to accomplish these different promises that God has, has given to us, but it also recognizes how limited our perspective in this life is. The more we recognize how little we actually know, the more we entrust the best answer to our prayers into God's hands. The more we, we recognize how little we know, how limited our perspective is, the more we can say, hey God, you know what, from my perspective here, it seems that this would be the best thing. This healing would be the best thing, but I also know I don't see the whole picture. I don't know the thousands of different ways that you could use my sickness and my life and the lives of others to establish your kingdom more fully in my own hearts, to establish your kingdom more fully in the lives of those who are around me. And so, while I am praying for this, let your will be done. Let your will be done. The heart that calls upon the name of the Lord echoes the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. To, Jesus wanted to, to desperately, wanted to avoid the cross, but, but he longed even more for God to fulfill his promises, and that meant that he would have to go to the cross. And so in Matthew, it says this, and going a little bit further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus expresses his longing to the Father while at the same time submitting that will to his Father's will. 
That is what it means to call upon the name of the Lord, to desire the fulfillment of God's promises in a way that God sees best more than any desire of our own, saying, not my will, but yours. Prayer in the Bible is fundamentally concerned with calling out to God, asking him to do what he has already promised to do. And as we said, or as we have seen, this recognize, recognizing this fundamental truth, it transforms our hearts, but it also can transform the content of our prayers. And so as we close just a few minutes, I want to I just consider briefly how we might begin, or, or begin again, to call upon the name of the Lord by using the Bible as we pray. Now, I don't know about you, but in addition to shallow prayers that can sometimes crop up in my, in my life that focus very little on the Father's heart, I also struggle in prayer with what I call the two-headed monster of aimlessness and repetition. Aimlessness and repetition. Anyone else? All right. What I mean by that is uh, if I don't have something to actively guide my prayers, my mind is soon going to wander. And what starts with the best of intentions slowly ends up, or quickly ends up, let's be honest, quickly ends up with me preparing my grocery list or my today's to-do list instead, uh, or or even worse than that on on many occasions, instead of actually praying for those uh, people that I want to pray for. And if by some miracle... I don't wander aimlessly. I soon succumb to repetition. I begin to pray the same generic thing for the same people a dozen different ways. And I began to, to use Jesus' words from the Gospel of Matthew. I began to babble like a pagan. Uh, just an example. God, be with my kids today. Watch over them. Help them protect them, just, 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 just be with them. Just, just watch over them, keep them. That's a lot of words. I said the, I, I don't even know what I just said. The Bible itself, what does that even mean? The Bible tells us that God is going to be with us, that his spirit dwells within us. He promises a countless times in his word. So how do we get from that to a place where we are actually calling upon the name of the Lord, where we're actually focused on the promises that God has made in his word. Well, we use scripture to guide our prayers. And when we use scripture to pray, we're actually actively reminding ourselves of God's priorities, of God's kingdom. And we're actually reminding ourselves, actively doing this, uh, of God's specific promises that he has given to us, to his people. Not just generic statements, ambiguous things like be with them. But actual tangible things Now, it might not kill the two-headed monster of aimlessness and repetition, but it certainly defangs it. So, uh, how do we do this? It's simple. Uh, Open your Bible. Open your Bible, start reading it, and pause at every verse and transform it into a prayer. And that's it. That's it. It's, It's not novel, but it is revolutionary. If prayer, remember what we said, prayer is actually us responding to what God has already done it is responding to the promises he has already made us, then I can think of no better place for us to start learning or or relearning how to call upon his name with those promises in the first place. And so there's this book out there. It's called uh, Praying the Bible. It's by Donald Whitney. Extremely helpful, very short, recommend it to you. It describes what this looks like by using the example of Psalm 23. How many of us are familiar with Psalm 23? Yep, okay, most of us are. Uh, let's, Let's just do the first verse. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And so I, I, I read that, and then I pause, 
and, and I let that psalm guide my prayers. Now I have the content that's going to form the focus of my prayers, and the Lord is my shepherd. Let's just start with that. And my prayers might go something like this. Father, I am, I am so grateful that you are my shepherd. Even when I, I don't feel your presence, I, I, God, I, I just trust, I, I trust that you are with me, that you are guiding me, that you're protecting me. And at the same time, Lord, help me to live my life in light of that truth, that I would increasingly trust that you are good, that I would increasingly learn, lean on you for guidance and for direction and for provision. And God, as someone who you've called to be an under-shepherd in your church, I, I'm so grateful that you are my good shepherd. There are many times where I'm overwhelmed, and so I just want to say thank you, Father, that you are not only my good shepherd, but you're also the good shepherd of all those in this congregation as well. That you deeply care for them in a way that I myself cannot fathom. And as I think of, of you as my, my shepherd, I also think of the parable of the lost sheep in Luke. And, I, and I'm just astounded by this lavish love that you have for people who have gone astray, for those who have wandered off, for those who don't even know you. And so God, I just ask that you continue to bring your kingdom here. Bring it in my own life, but specifically in the lives of, and then I would name some friends and family that, that don't know the Lord. And I'd do this exact same thing for friends, for family, for my church, for others. If I have a friend that's in the hospital, I'd specifically pray for God's encouragement for them. There's no real theme here beyond the idea of a shepherd, that all the things that it conjures up in my mind. And now from a consistent habit of Bible reading, of reminding myself of, myself of the promises of, of, uh, that God has made in his word and the Father's heart, my mind jumps to other parts of the Bible, other parts of the Bible that talk about a shepherd, places like Ezekiel, John, 1 Peter, uh, Luke. And when I've exhausted that, I've you know, spent some time praying about the Lord is my shepherd, I, I move on to the next phrase. Next phrase, I shall not want. Say something like this, Lord, I, I look at my own heart, and as I look at my own heart, I just realize how much I covet what others have. And so God, I just ask that you would forgive me. Help me, help my family to increasingly trust you for our provision because we know that you are God, that you are good. Father, I, I ask that you would help my kids, that you would protect them from this love of money and love of things, that you would help them to get their fullest delight in you and not the things that money can buy. And then I go on and, and I talk about maybe I have specific needs for provision, and so I ask for those. And I ask God to reveal ways that I can be a better steward of our family's finances and, and more. And let's say by this point, I've spent about 10 minutes in prayer for myself, for other people. I spent time in confession, as you heard. I talked about ways that I need to repent of setting up my own kingdom. I've made requests to God. I've asked him to come through on his promises. I've also spent time thanking God for the ways he has come through on those promises. I've done all these things, and that's all just from one verse. All of that shapes our heart to call upon the name of the Lord. And if I have more time, I move on to the next verse. I get to verse 2, and maybe nothing stands out to me from verse 2 today. And so I jump on to verse 3, and I keep going as time permits, and I'm using the Bible to shape my prayers, and I'm trusting that God's Spirit is at work in my heart, guiding me in what I am to pray from the very beginning. You see, by praying the Bible, I'm prioritizing the things that God himself prioritizes. That doesn't mean that I don't pray for the urgent needs of my day. But I am increasingly conforming my prayers 
to the prayers that God has given to us in Scripture, the priorities, the the Father's heart revealed in Scripture. Significantly, your greatest tool in calling upon the name of the Lord, it's in your hands. It's your Bible. See, prayer is fundamentally calling on God to come through on his promises. We call out to God because he has first called to us. We recognize there is a gap between our experience and what God has promised. And so we call on him to deliver on those promises while still trusting him in the interim. We cultivate this heart of a child that knows that God's, of all the things that that primarily God is concerned with, I am powerless to bring any of them about. And so I ask him to do it. I call out for God to do what only he can do. Prayer is fundamentally calling on God to come through on his promises. And when we recognize that, our prayers are transformed. That certainly does not mean that prayer becomes easy. Paul writes about this in Colossians 4. He's talking about a friend named Epaphras. It says this, Epaphras, who was one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you might stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Paul doesn't say, hey, you guys, you know, you know Epaphras, right? Well, he struggled for his prayers for a while, but then he tried these three things, and by golly, man, he's, he's just, it's, it's just like cruising now. No, he says, hey, he's struggling in prayer for you. He's continuing to struggle on your behalf in prayers, not because it's easy, but because it's essential Prayer's never easy. There's always a thousand other things for us to do. The cynicism of our culture will always make us skeptics to whether prayer actually works. But just because prayer isn't easy doesn't mean it's not worth it. Think about it. When's the last time that anything worth doing was ever easy? And so we call upon the name of the Lord to come through on his promises. And as we increasingly do that, we begin to see that prayer, even though it doesn't become easy, maybe it becomes less of a duty and more of a delight. Prayer is fundamentally calling on God to come through on what he has already promised to us. And when we do that, we join our voices with the people of God across the globe, throughout the ages, longing for the final fulfillment of all of God's promises to us. Your voice is joined together with people all across the globe who long for a day where God is going to come in his fullness. A day when calling upon the name of the Lord is no longer necessary because his promises are here, that we are dwelling with him in his new creation, as the end of the Bible tells us. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the, let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask that you would help us to pray. That you would help us to be increasingly concerned with the things of your kingdom that we would increasingly become aware of our own inability, of our own inability to, to make any lasting change in our lives, to bring about your kingdom in our own hearts or in the hearts of those around us. 
Help us to, to turn our hearts and, and our affections to you, to, to recognize that, that, God, you are good and, and that we will trust you in, in, in the interim, in this gap between our experiences and what you have promised to us. God, I pray that you would never, uh, that we would never stop crying out to you, asking you to come through on what you have already promised us. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.